Hello everyone, welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode with Emerson is about music writing, music criticism, or the lack thereof. Uh, when Emerson and I first met, he was uh, regularly writing about music, and um, when did we first meet? Was I? And 20 years later, he's not writing about music anymore, and I'm about to start writing about music again. It's been a minute for me, so that's really what this conversation is about, and um, it ends with uh, something that I did not expect Emerson to tell me, and I want to be respectful of what he said. If you would like to be respectful to me and this podcast, please consider donating to our Patreon. We've been doing it for 13 years. There's 700 plus episodes and they are all available on you me them everybody.com we didn't have a patreon until the pandemic hit for pandemic reasons and guess what we're still in it um we have tiers uh you could afford the tier if you could come to the show and afford a beer if you can't i completely understand here's the show by my lights possibly the definitive work of art to come out of the the quarantine milieu so you think nick cave warren ellis is like not bad seeds record will be the thing that people remember or you think that captures the zeitgeist of the moment it'll be the thing that that i remember okay among a couple of other things uh that i think did a really good job with the kind of claustrophobic compressed grief of the hmm. last year uh that i experienced and that seemed to be in the air but as far as like, I don't even know if there's going to be a zeitgeist. Uh, it, I think things are so fragmented and diffused. It's um, it's hard to say. Everyone is very much in more of their own reality tunnel than they used to be. I think. Well, I clearly agree with a lot of that. There are zeitgeist moments that inevitably will not inevitably that i think will continue to be zeitgeist moments for example little nas x's old town road a few years ago right that seemingly was everywhere yeah i'll give you that and that crossed over everywhere and now right now he's in the zeitgeist again because of his satan video and shoes and so there will be things like that and that makes me happy and at the start of the pandemic it was probably the last dance and I'm assuming you didn't watch it, but it got a lot of people renewed back into basketball, back into the 90s basketball, specifically the Bulls, and that led to a giant boom of the sports card market because people were just trying to scratch that nostalgia itch, but also current baseball players and football cards and basketball cards. So there will be a zeitgeist. I just don't think it could be manufactured in the exact same way. I think in a weird way it'll be more natural and and maybe beautiful. Maybe more democratic. Yeah. Because I don't think there's going to be anything like Johnny Carson or Michael Jackson's thriller that has that level of ubiquity and cultural dominance. And that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. Now, you stopped writing about music. You used to write about music. Why did you stop? I, mostly I was interested in music from a pretty young age. My dad played music and there was always a lot of great music in my house uh from the beatles and prog rock and motown and uh you know that was kind of my escape and uh i read record reviews to uh, like i got the um trouser press record guide with all of the snarky kind of british uh record reviews of various uh 
rock canon records and got familiar with a lot of stuff that way. And always, you know, I, w I would write reviews of music that I listened to or bought just a, as an exercise for fun. And as I, when I was in college and in my twenties, I found that that was a good way to stay connected to music to get a lot of records for free back yeah. when that meant something. Yeah. Uh, getting a bunch of free CDs in the mail seemed like magic. It was like Columbus, but without the downsides. And um, I met interesting people that way. Like I got a chance to interview musicians that I had a lot of admiration for. And uh, it served as an on-ramp to getting involved in culture in other ways but i think i stopped writing about music for a few reasons um one kind of what we were just talking about i think things are so diffuse that and music criticism and consumer response music is distributed with social media and youtube and everything else that it didn't seem like there was as much of a need. Like I wasn't serving too much of a purpose by continuing to write records. Also, I think it ended up being a distraction from doing my own shit. Like I felt a little bit too much like I was using other people's creative work as an excuse to experiment in my own writing, which was a lot of fun. And I'm glad I got to do it. I'm glad that there was an audience of people that would read the stuff that I wrote because it was about something else that they cared about. Uh, you know, that was a great way to try new things and develop as a writer. But after a while, um, I felt a little bit of shame around kind of using other people's creative efforts as a as a springboard, particularly when I noticed that, um, and you know, not shocking to anyone, being really snarky and negative gets a lot more response than being positive or even neutral or somewhere off that scale really trashing something is what got the most response when I did it. And it's, I think, you know, criticism serves a function and there's something satisfying about something that's a little bit overhyped getting taken down a notch, but I didn't really want to keep doing that because, uh, you know, in the end, I think I wanted to be more on the, side of people that do creative stuff and try new things and fail and overshoot their abilities sometimes than on the side of people missing them for doing that, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. Now here's my five minute response to all that. Um, let's hear it. So let's work backwards. I think that there absolutely is a wonderful reason to take down certain artists. And it's usually because that they're charging their fans too much money or there's something lacking that they might not notice. So 
I think a decent example is I saw Perfume Genius at a 1200 seat club, and it was a perfectly fine show. But considering what this guy had been doing on late night and considering the amazing records, there was just one little piece lacking. And it reminded me of the Nirvana in Utero tour, which is as long if you just put the little the the skeleton angel body things on the stage, like give it that little bit of pizzazz like that would really benefit the set. You know, like I don't think I'm knocking Perfume Genius down a peg, just like this little aspect could make something that's already good a lot better. And clearly you've already been doing this in your videos, so I don't see why you can't translate that onto the tour. So, like, this is a very small example. Another one is Arcade Fire. I saw Arcade Fire's most two two most recent tours in the giant stadium in D.C., right? So it's like 20, uh, 2015 and 2017, let's say, right? And the first edition was one of the worst shows I saw all year, and the next edition a few years later was one of the best shows I saw all year. So I was able to compare and contrast like what made something horrible, what made something great in the exact same tour cycle. And I think that's somewhat worthy of writing about because that's an act that's going to tour the entire country to twenty to 30,000 people a night. That might encourage someone to spend $50 or not spend $50. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Okay. And I still read stuff like that. And I think it's definitely valuable and people have interesting things to say. Um, I just felt more like the, um, the feeling I was getting from continuing to write record reviews that I was, wasn't really invested in is that I was running out of things to say, and I was kind of being called in the direction of doing something on my own, uh, I guess the the example that kept coming to me was uh, when the Ramones started making music, it was very trollish and they put out records that they knew a lot of people were going to hate with the um, kind of disclaimer that if you, if you hate this, if it pisses you off, you should make your own thing because we're showing you how easy that is to do. So I'm um, in a so weird. I, guess I thought um, I'm in a giant Ramones yeah, I, I rabbit was, hole. I right felt, now. Yeah, I'm in a giant Ramones rabbit hole right now, and I respectfully disagree with that thesis because I do believe. Okay. Johnny and Joey specifically thought they were going to be a big band and stop. Like when they started in '74, what they're doing there to them and to important figures in that movement, like Les McNeil and Hilly. This is a band that's capturing all the good stuff from 50s and 60s girl groups and stuff like that, but without any of the prog rock BS, no offense, without any of the prog rock stuff. And they right. they did it not because it was an instruction manual for other people, because, but they thought they were going to be popular. And watching and reading as much as I could over the last month about the Ramones, they thought they were going to be a giant band. And they didn't really give that up until the failure of the end of the century records, which pretty much puts us at the end of the seventies. Mm-hmm. So that thesis is already flawed that they're just making music to like How so? poke you in the chest being like, you hate this. Don't you get a little punk? No, they thought they were writing beautiful love songs and they were, and it definitely appealed to a certain subset of people, most of which became music critics, but I I it, I don't think it was a reactionary band in the way you could say the Sex Pistols were formed as a commercial entity reactionary band. That's fair. Yeah, I, but I think it can be a little bit of both. 
I think provocation is part of the artist's job. But, you know, if you're going to the trouble to make records and go on tour, you obviously think you have something more than that to offer. I mm-hmm. would hope it would get tiring otherwise. Yeah, I don't think they set out thinking we're going to fail or we're going to have a ceiling. I think that that definitely set in. Yeah, but I think that there was an antagonistic element to it. Or it was was a provocation in that, you know, by stripping away a lot of the BS of of prog rock, they... (laughs) What was compelling about it is that it was something that you could do theoretically. Maybe you don't have the inspiration that they have, but you have the technical skill. That definitely is the... And you have the tools. If you can buy a guitar and yeah. some amps. That was definitely the result of the band, but I don't know if that was their initial goal. Maybe that's what that's that's what I got out of it. Okay. I think the other thing is I realized... Um, a, Without, I, I, a lot of my writing about music was mostly gut checks, and I was clearly talking more about myself than, here's what I think you need if you're as an effective critic. I think um, you can come at it from the uh, like consumer advocacy position, which I have a lot of respect for, or uh, somebody like Seth Simons, who did the New Republic mm-hmm. Uh, alt-right comedy piece that you covered where you have a definite framework for what's good and what's bad. Mm -hmm. And it's different from this is what the market rewards, so this is good. Mm -hmm. You know, you're coming in with the assumption that there's something more important than everyone likes this, so it's good. So you're in a position to criticize things that are are widely popular and have something original to say about them. And I didn't really, in the end, I didn't think I was delivering on that. I thought a lot of it was just, I was freestyling or writing short humor pieces or writing about myself, which was definitely the way, there was a lot of music criticism like that in the, in the Audis early pitchfork being the hold on. exemplar of it. P- hold on, pump your brakes there, because mm-hmm. you gave me a good book, a, a decent book. I don't know if you remember this. When you were initially moving out of Chicago, you gave me a book of music criticism. You've actually given me two books of music criticism over the years. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, yeah, I gave you the Lester Bangs book, and you said like three other people had already given it yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah, and I'm looking at it right now. And Bangs was doing this well he was long dead by the time Pitchfork launched. Yeah, he was also, as he was um, in his last days, he was trying to transition into more of like a freestyle humanist beat writer. Sure. Where I think he, he had was also experiencing some car, what he perceived as some karmic blowback for... Uh, being an avatar of, of negativity in the music scene, you know, a, a glorious one and a funny one and a brilliant one. But I think he wanted to be more like Jack Kerouac in the end and was kind of struggling to do that and realizing how hard it is to to strike out on your own. Agreed. You're 100% right. But, like, this is a guy that the majority of his stuff is the 70s, 
that cre- maybe that's the foundation block to you get your pitchforks. Um, there, he's essentially maybe the Ramones of music critics, where at the time, okay. yeah, he wasn't that important, but now he's like the, one of the most, if not the most important critic. So, I get all that. I get all that. But one of the things that criticism we don't, I don't think we talk enough about, and maybe things are changing is it's really tough to know what an album, a band, a piece of art means to the listener until years down the road. So maybe that's why mm-hmm. the most recent Cave Ellis record feels so powerful is because it actually hits almost instantly because of the time and the place that it was recorded and released. But I'm going to be very curious what you think about this a decade from now, if it's the same, if it's evolved. And that's the piece that clearly can't be written today. Right. But that That's the kind of stuff I care about. And I had the exact same problems with books, not because I don't love book reviews. I do love book reviews. They're incredibly helpful. They're the most important criticism in all forms of art, at least to me. The problem is I feel like I'm under an avalanche of stuff that I'm never going to get to what's modern and current today. And only after I read the actual books based on the book reviews do I realize it doesn't matter when you read it. As long as it gets to you, it's worthy and... I think what I'm trying to say is I wish there was more music criticism, art criticism that didn't exist for until like five years down the road from when it was initially consumed. Yeah, totally agree. I think the one reason I stopped doing record reviews is I wanted to stop doing hot takes. Yeah. I I think what's cool about Carnage is that you can... uh, It's so compressed. They recorded it inside of a week. And it's more immediate than his last couple of records. It, it's a stark contrast with Ghost Team, which is a slow burn. That came out a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, and I'm still digesting it. What's the? How do you feel about the recent solo record? The first, uh, it's just him. It's a live record, but it's... Oh, yeah. I uh, I watched it live on uh, like I subscribed to a special service to mm-hmm. watch it over the summer. Um, I it's he's revisiting some of his old work with just him and a piano, and yeah, it's very in line with um, kind of the the sense of self examination that hangs over a lot of what he's been doing, uh, where you can see him reparsing his old work and figuring out what's still true and reinterpreting it. Yeah, I I really love that record. It's maybe it's for fans only, but I dig it. I dig it too, but clearly I'm a fan and I I this is just becoming like a Nick Cave praise fest, but he's doing That'll what I happen. think he's doing what I think I want most critics, most artists to do, which is you don't have to keep creating the same. You don't have to keep creating new things to make new. This is a weird thing to say. You could revisit old things to learn something new, and he's oh, clearly totally. doing that. Yeah, I think there's one of the things that stops people from putting stuff out. Speaking for myself, and I've heard this from other people, is that it there's the sense that once you publish something or release it that's your definitive statement on that thing. 
And in no way does that have to be true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it's true that once you put a book out, you can't keep going back and fixing things. But now work is tends to be much more iterative, particularly if it's digital first. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing stopping you from doing if you write a poem about owls and then you find out you have more to say about them you can always write another one mm-hmm. or I, just cover your own work i don't understand why this is what you said using other people's creative work to experiment with your own thing i don't see why that's a bad thing it's not it just got old and okay. i got self-conscious about it because um it seemed like when I trashed people's work, it got, I, I got a huge amount of positive and negative attention for that. That was, I could tell was habit forming, but also felt a little bit toxic. I'm just kind of a softy when it comes to that. I'm on sure. the side of creative people and artists, and I don't want to antagonize them just for my own benefit. Have you ever had a, uh, an issue with the word artist? Yeah, actually something um, something came back to me uh, a few days ago. Uh, someone I used to work with uh, told another person that I knew that I was specifically not an artist. <laughs> was it that me? I was a copywriter. Okay. No. <laughs> It was, and I, I, that really ate at me. And I thought, why is this bothering me so much? This is so stupid. It feels like something from the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, it does. I, I really do think that every, and oh, it, her explanation was he's not an artist because he doesn't get paid for mm. the, the create, which I wasn't at the time. So it was fair by her metrics. I did not qualify as an artist because I wasn't putting, an artist on my tax returns. Got it. That's her definition of art. Fine. Yeah. For me, it's much more broad to me. Art and creativity is possibly the most important thing in the world. I feel the way about that, that evangelical Christians feel about Jesus. I think I, I would put it in the top that 10. Life, yeah. It's probably things like medicine. Or yeah. Medicine or, and food, uh, <laughs> food and shelter. And medicine. Yeah. Once you get up Maslow's pyramid. Yeah. Uh, I I think, see, you know, seeing the world in creative artistic terms is something everyone should be doing. If they're not, I think they can benefit from Agreed. it. And kind of looking at every little action that you take as a work of art might be delusional but i think it's a beautiful way to live I, and that's what i'm trying to do now i already do that i have done that forever i still have a big problem with the word artist not because it's not accurate but because the same way i have problems with other phrases this i know artist isn't a phrase but certain phrases of the moment i think it's dismissive of certain behaviors so, oh, he's an artist. He's allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Picasso's a great oh, example yeah. of that. Oh, yeah. Fuck that. Exactly. I, we're, we're waking up from that nightmare. And I have the exact same problem with Rockstar because, to me, the biggest four rock stars of all time is Motley Crue, and all four, well, three of the four of them are atrocious people, one of which murdered yeah. a man. So, like, you don't want to be a rock star. And if you are a rock star, that's not necessarily a good thing. So, 
when the people say I'm an artist, people say I'm a rock star, like they don't mean it in these negative ways, but my brain always goes to that. So I'm like, I hate the phrase artist, even though what they are are artists. And I hate the phrase rock star for negative reasons. And, and I don't know if this will ever change. I think we're in a transition where uh, particularly in Hollywood, but in other parts of the entertainment industry and in the art world, you know, the, the highbrow art world and academia and other kind of cathedrals that have been isolated from public scrutiny, people have been allowed to behave like absolute monsters mm -hmm. when they achieve a certain level of success. And I like to think that that's breaking down a little bit. I think the Me Too movement is evidence of that. Uh, the secrets are getting out. You know, the same thing that happened with the Catholic Church and a lot of other institutions that had thrived on an internal hierarchy that was not subject to criticism by people that weren't part of the in-group. A lot of that has just been blown away by the Internet. And hopefully that it will continue to... Um, be a situation where even you know no matter how much you've succeeded you're still expected to behave like an adult and treat people with dignity or if you don't you're going to get called out for it like everyone else does i'm going to end with i need a one artist answer from you music related and then we're going to close this thing who is the most problematic artist that you still enjoy r kelly for sure are you being serious just a horrific human being cannot deny his contributions to popular music. I want to thank I, you no for way being I can honest. Go back, there's no way I can go back and say there's no value in this work. I want to thank you for being honest. You're welcome. You, Me, Them, Everybody is made by me, Brandon Weatherby. Our theme music is by Daniel Knox. Our art is by Jillian Ron. You can hear all 13 years of shows at youmethemeverybody.com. If you're listening to this in Spotify or on iTunes, the last year of episodes are available uh, with some sprinklings of the other ones. If you want the rest of the catalog, which features over 700 episodes, youmethemeverybody.com. Our Patreon page is on our About page. It's all there. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff, at sign Y-M-T-E. Thanks for listening. I'll hug the places that you've been sleeping, friends and family I'll be keeping won't help.